If you're a fiction writer, I have got a treat for you with today's guest, Dave Reed. The author's switch. Hello and welcome to The Author's Switch, the podcast dedicated to helping new and aspiring authors turn on The Author's Switch in their mind for success. Today's guest is Dave Reed. He is uh, an author of Dark epic fantasy fiction. And he uh, fell in love with fiction at the tender age of, I guess, the second grade. I don't know how old you are in the second grade when he published his first book. And he will tell his story in our chat together. This podcast will probably go on a little bit longer than normal because our conversation meandered through his author's journey, how to tell a story, how to structure a story, just really interesting thing. If you're a fiction writer, you will find a lot of wonderful, interesting tidbits to help you in telling your story and how to get your story out into the world. So please enjoy this interview with author Dave Reed. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Carmen. I appreciate it. So first up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your author's journey? How did you get here? Not to the podcast, but to authorship. <laughs> In second grade, I was scarred by my second grade teacher. She published, quote unquote, my first book. And I keep it on the shelf to remind me that it's her fault that I want to do this really hard work of writing stories and changing people's lives by giving them words. What Stephen King talks about is telepathy. I literally type things and send them into the future, into somebody else's brain. I think that's pretty cool. But it was decades before I got serious about it. So about 10 years ago, in 2011, I decided I'm gonna get serious about writing, I'm gonna write a book. I figured in 12 months, I'd have a couple of books, I'd knock Brandon Sanderson off of his throne. I'd be sipping tea with St. George and be great. <laughs> That's not what happened because it turns out that as one of the great American novelists said, everybody knows what a story is until they sit down to write one. And so I down and I wrote one and a bunch of stuff happened on the page. It wasn't even a story. I hired an editor and he said, this is great. You should try and sell it to New York. Go get an agent. Because I think, because he's, he's a New York Times bestselling author and an editor in his own right, I've been doing it for decades, but I think he was afraid to hurt my feelings and tell me this is terrible. He wanted someone else to tell me how horrible it was. And so, over the, yeah, well, it, it happens and it was a good experience. I had already decided back then I was diehard indie. I didn't have any intention to go trad, mm. but I tried. And along the way, I began reading and studying more. I met and worked with Michael Hagee. I met and worked with Lisa Cron. I met and worked with Damon Swade. I've tried to learn at the knee of all the gurus out there, Robert McKee, John Truby, everybody, all the names that are luminaries in our industry of how to construct story. And so now a decade later, as a StoryGrid certified editor, 
I look back on the first book of uh, uh, four, and I think it was probably Chuck Wendig that told me, you're going to have to write five novels that are just utter trash, a million words of what he called crap, and throw it away. He didn't call it crap. He used a different word. But <laughs> that's just Chuck. <clears throat> And I hated that. I didn't want to. I wanted to figure out how to not do that. I wanted to just type gold. But I can't. It's an iterative process. I've come to accept that those trunk novels are, are, are trunk novels. I may go back and fix it, but I know what's wrong with them now. And I could, but is it worth it? Because I've also right. figured out as, a, as an authorpreneur, isn't that what you call it? Authorpreneur? Authorpreneur, yeah. Authorpreneur. As an authorpreneur, I need a brand. I need something that's focused. And so I did some grieving with the help of my writing coaches in 2018 to figure out what that is. Because I have one of everything. I have a coffee shop romance. I have a young adult fantasy romance. I have a really dark, gritty urban fantasy. I have queer romance. I've, I actually wrote a paranormal for an anthology that got published a couple of years ago. And I need to pick one. And so I picked dark, epic fantasy as as my brand, that's my home. I grew up with Elric of Melnibonet. I grew up with fantasy, love Tolkien. He's not dark enough for me, but that's okay. We can still have hobbits and he gets, he let, he walks the edge of Mordor. We don't really get into it, but mm -hmm. for me, the journey has come to a place where I'm launching my first, my debut novel this year, so in October. I'm looking forward to throwing it out there. It's up for pre-order and I'm looking forward to seeing if it lands as well as I hope. I love the book. I love my anti-heroine. And I hope everybody else does too. Well, that's good. I mean, it would be very sad if you didn't. <laughs> it would, but that's not going to stop the career. For me, I've that's decided true. this is my vocation. In the Elizabeth Gilbert formulation, this isn't, it's, it's something I want to be my job. I'm working on it as if it's my career, but I'm going to do it whether it makes money or not. Right, right. So I, I have another job. I juggle a, what some people call a day job. And my therapist tells me I need to stop calling a day job and just call my other job. Writing is a job. I do it full time. I also do other things full time to earn my bread, if you will. And exactly. I think that's okay. And someday it may be full time, nothing but novels which sounds kind of scary now that I see what the real metrics are. I look at Kalytics data. I look at how hard, how many books it requires. There's the group 20 to 50 K. I haven't joined that group, but that's 20 books is a lot of books. It's a lot of writing, especially for somebody like me who writes fairly slowly. Mm -hmm. This one hurt because it took me four years and four page one rewrites from scratch. But I didn't know what I was doing and it took in, until finding story grid and actually figuring out the structure, but I also need to do the world building. So some of those drafts that I threw away, I had to write just to figure out the world, the magic system, how things are structured and the story, my character. It wasn't wasted time, it was practice. And that was something I don't do well and I'm learning to develop. Right. Um, Love Seth Godin's book, Practice. But I'm that kid from high school that didn't. I refuse to do homework on principle. <laughs> Just give me the test. I'll take the test. 
And if it's 90 or better, that's fine. I got an A. I don't really need to do homework. That's for other people. Uh-huh. And I have to do homework now. I'm learning how to do it and write things. So I have a coffee shop romance series that I write. I don't have any intention to publish, but it's practice because honestly, I think writing romance is harder than other genres, and especially in the courtship genre. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to write his and hers points of view, if you have the actual struggle, you're writing two stories. There are two full character arcs. Both have to be different internally. And the love story itself has a lot of very complex obligatory scenes and conventions. Sure, you could bang out one really quick that feels just like everything else. But if you want to innovate, you want right. to satisfy the genre experts that have read all of the other stuff, that's where the magic is and that's hard yeah yeah for me i find that uh writing comedy is hard that's because i have a i have a <clears throat> i have a comedy story in my head that wants to be mm-hmm. written and it keeps popping up in my head saying write me write me write me and i'm like i'm sorry i can't because I, I just i mean oh, i can be I funny can. in the moment well i mean not in the moment i can't give it what it needs because right. I mean, I can be like one-liner funny in the moment, mm-hmm. but to write good uh, horror, fantasy, humor that will entertain over the length of a novel mm-hmm. and be cohesive, I'm, I'm, my skill level is not there yet. So that story is there. And at some point I will have the skill that it needs. But I don't I have it now. <laughs> I think that could be because as a culture, we're more immersed in drama than we are in comedy. And there are people obviously who have a gift for comedy, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's a skill. I, I still have somewhere Rory Baden's book on comedy, how to be funny. And it include a lot of very simple things that are basic principles in engineering of comedy. Yeah, I try to lighten my work by adding humor, but I'm not writing intentional absurdist type comedy like Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. Right. Love, love Terry Pratchett. Love Douglas Adams. Yes, they're two of my favorite. Great stuff. And I think that it's a combination of gift and skill. Mm-hmm. You could work on it on purpose, but studying comedy is, is different than studying drama. Exactly. Drama is what happens to us all day, every day. Exactly. Now, going going back to what you were talking about with your own work, you were talking about how yours is dark, epic fantasy. Yes. And in a way, those are like three different genres that you're kind of mooshing together. How do you describe this? What 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 does it mean to be dark, epic fantasy? What does someone what can someone expect if they pick up your book they will expect different things based on each of those words dark means that they're going to expect there to be violence i like to joke that i put the romance back in necromancy there is going (laughs) to be magic there is going to be challenges there's going to be things that cause people with a low squick factor to close the book and run away because they don't want that in their head if you liked The Witcher, you'll like my book. It's in a similar emotional space of dark fantasy. The epic part 
is a matter of scale. The obligatory part of Epic for me is cosmic impact at the national scale or, or above. So if you think of Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, the Game of Thrones HBO series, mm-hmm. that's internecine, it's Byzantine, there's lots of national scale stakes. And so- They got pretty book, too. <laughs> yes, no, and I think that, that Martin is in my emotional space. Joe Abercrombie writes in that same space. Morgan Rice writes in that same space. I'm reading a lot of Mark Lawrence right now. I loved his his books. They're in my emotional space. And I think they're dark, epic fantasy. Some of them are more personal. Some of the stakes start small and grow over the course of a series. Mine is the first of a quadrilogy. And so I know what the story arc is for all four of those books. And I know that we're beginning and it accelerated. So that I'm, I'm one of those people who has a delusion of being a plotter someday. I'm not. I, I'm a discovery writer. I mean, an inside the snow globe writer is how my writing coaches describe it. Um, but I still use structure like story grid to figure out if I'm getting to where I want to go. And for Epic, that means at scale. So it starts very personal. She's killed. My anti-heroine dies before page one. And for the entire first book, my intention was for her to work through personal stakes. It escalated much more quickly than that. By the end of the first book, well, no spoilers. <laughs> but it's so if she, if bigger. she's your if she's your anti-heroine and she dies in the beginning of for a book 1, how how is she your heroine? Is this where the necromancy comes in? It is where the necromancy comes in. Okay. So on page one, she finds herself in the underworld, in the afterlife. And I'm inverting some tropes. There's typical of a hero's journey type story or a heroine's journey type story, which are very different things. I'm, I'm reading Gail characters. Yes, really yes cool they are. About the heroine's journey. In, in this case, she's a blend of both. Uh, but... The underworld is her, is her new ordinary world. Okay. The extraordinary world is when she climbs, claws her way back out into the sun to make things right. She's trying to protect what's left of her family and her kinfolk. And it escalates into a very rapid desire for vengeance for wrongs done her family and her mm. and the rest of the book until uh, the f- about the ending payoff in story grid terms, she then re-enters the underworld. So her journey comes full circle and we get to see what that means for her when she has more fully, not completely, but more fully embraced her goddesshood as the Raven Queen. Okay. So in a way, she she's very much like Persephone, who is the heroine's journey. Yes. Just I a darker. Probably a little darker and a lot more violent. <laughs> probably, yes. Per- Persephone was 
was pretty gentle very, and forgiving. Very innocent, she, yes. She, she very didn't innocent. stab anyone. She didn't, Not that I know, no. Yeah, she didn't consume their corpses or their souls. No, so, she yeah. ate a pomegranate seed. That was pretty <laughs> much it, yeah. But, um, but that is her journey. She, like, she returns and becomes queen of the underworld. Six months a year, right? Yeah. But that's only because her mom was such a wuss and missed her so much. So it's like, okay, mom, I'll hang out with you oh, half a year. No love for Demeter. <laughs> we are. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm writing the second book already. And of course, she has, we begin in the underworld and she has to leave. And I'm finding reasons for a goddess to give up or to leave her seat of power and what would encourage her, what would induce her to go back? Right. So uh, I wrote myself into a corner and now I'm in the process of writing myself back, back out. Back, back out, yeah, you gotta wait for that paint to dry <laughs> so uh, you can walk yeah. on it. <laughs> well, we'll see, the book one's in copy edits and so I'm just waiting on Shayla to come back to me with, I don't know. I'm nervous about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how big a revision is required. Exactly. Exactly. So now you said you had tried all these different genres and as part of your author's journey, and you landed on this being your brand. Now, some authors, and I've talked to some on this podcast, some of them have decided, well, I'll have multiple brands so that I can continue to write multiple stories. And some like me just do them all and have yeah. one brand. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I, I do think cookbooks. those are all right. And those are all valid strategies. So from my point of view, as a software engineer that I've been doing, I've been writing software for 30 years. And it's the reason why I have delusions of being a plotter. I want there to be process and expectations and predictability. And there's not. <laughs> but okay. in, in, in the creative space, I have, I have a backlog because I'm a high ideation personality. I just am a fountain of ideas. I think of new things all the time. And so I write them down I put them in Ulysses and I keep track of this huge running list of things. What I did in 2018 was kind of tabulate that. Um, and I'm not a high analysis personality, but I, I did the work anyway to look at the scope of things. I have a lot of ideas I want to write in science fiction. I have some I want to write in space fantasy. I have some that I want to write in urban fantasy. And that's, that's my, one of my loves. I really adore and enjoy urban fantasy. But right now it's swamped. It's awash in right to market folks. And it's a, it's a knife fight. One of my mentors is in urban fantasy. And she has to fight tooth and nail for every new reader to grow her audience and to, because mm. there's just so many. And I don't know why they're in urban fantasy. And for some reason they have chosen not to go into fantasy, either because constructed world fantasy seems harder or because they don't want to do the work of moving their story out of earth. And I don't know. Right. But I'm grateful for that. And that's part of what played into my decision is over the course of learning, I was in Romance Writers of America for four years. I watched Paranormal Romance, which is the kissing cousin of urban fantasy, right. lose 
every traditional publisher. They literally seeded the field. So over the course of the four years of Rita's that I watched, there was one that I remember that was a traditionally published paranormal romance, PNR. The rest were all indies. Mm -hmm. Because unless you have an established writer, the big five or big six or big four, however many there are. I think they're days. down to three now. I but if we include Amazon publishing, is it how many? I don't know how many that makes, but yeah, whatever it is, New York publishing isn't bringing on new paranormal romance or urban fantasy writers. They just aren't. Right. If you're Faith Hunter or Larry Correa, if you already have your Jim Butcher, you have an established audience, they will continue to publish new books from you. But then they won't take mine. Right. I, I, and that was one because of the it's things saturated. I was It is totally saturated because you have to give away free books these days, it seems, as an indie, just to get new eyeballs and then earn on the read through of your series, either in KU or by selling them. Yeah. Uh, some niches are like that and some are not. Thrillers, not like that. Fantasies, not like that. And sci-fi is one of my loves. I want to, and I have some stories I really, really want to get to. But it's, as a market, half the size of fantasy right now. And I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. I know that there are trends and I'm watching cyberpunk is kind of on the decline. We live in a cyberpunk dystopia already. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, you know what? I don't really need more of that in my life today. And the thing with science fiction is, because um, one of my hobbies is the history mm -hmm. of science fiction, is that number one, it's become more and more fractured over time. Okay. And number two, our life has started to catch up to it. And our ideas are not, they're not, they're they not different enough. They don't seem as far-fetched. Yes, they don't, it's, it's really Once like more of the, the same, only darker, you know, it's like. But sci-fi has always had a current of darkness through it that fantasy hasn't had, especially epic fantasy. So Tolkien and, and Howard and some of the others, we don't, don't have that sort of Ursula K. Le Guin. It's a little bit of darkness, just enough to make it interesting, but it wasn't full on dark. Whereas sci-fi, iRobot, on the surface was very painted very nicely, but there's an undercurrent of dark in that story. Yeah. And a lot of sci-fi has always kind of been gritty by comparison. Because it's there's a lot of dealing with fear in science fiction. Oh, sure. We're afraid of the other. We're afraid of being taken over. We're afraid of losing ourselves. We're afraid. We're afraid of lots of things. And that's, oh, what's that's like a that's lot true of true fantasy as well. Honest to be, if we're honest, stories yeah. are about change. They're about yes. confronting fear and confronting change exactly. and going through that emotional struggle. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but anyway, so the grieving process for me was looking at the big list and figuring out what I had the most of in my idea pile. Ah, I'm okay. going to make a career out of this. Then I'm going to, mm. I have this pile of ideas. I have these stories that are shorts that I can turn into full length novels. I have these skeletons of stories that I've imagined and just wrote a bunch about. And so I picked that. And as I evolved it from just fantasy, and I, I prefer for myself, less epic stories but i know that my audience the avid readers today still prefer so millennials like, yeah. and z prefer a more epic story 
which is fine for me as a lifelong D&D player. I mean, I was there when Gary Gagax came down from the mountains with the stone tablets of chainmail that eventually became Dungeons and Dragons. That's how old I am and how long I've been playing tabletop role-playing games. And I love the personal story, my character in my space. I thought about game lit, but it's still a little too early and a little too niche for me. There are a lot of fantasy readers that don't want to hear the dice at the table. They don't want to feel like, well, I could just watch Critical Role and get the same sort of story. They want something that gives them a little more illusion and disbelief and disconnection. So that was how I got to dark and epic and fantasy. Cool. So what is unique about your writing process? Attention authors, speakers, and coaches. Does your website attract nothing but crickets? And tire kickers? Then you might be committing one of the five deadly mistakes of homepage design. Home Sweet Homepage, how to fix the five deadly mistakes that authors, speakers, and coaches make with their website's homepage will help you clear the crickets, repel the tire kickers, and start attracting the right kind of traffic that will convert to readers, clients, and speaking opportunities. Available wherever books are sold in paperback and ebook formats. Bookmarketingclub.com forward slash homepage book. What is unique about your writing process? I have a... I call it a Franken process. So <laughs> I've been collecting methods. I've been collecting story structure. And honestly, I, I'm overdue to do the project. Uh, I want to take all of them. Michael Hagee, John Truby, Robert McKee, all of the greats on top of Plato and Aristotle and just lay them all on top of each other because I think they're literally all the same thing. Probably. It's, the story is story. I'm not done with Gail's book on the heroine's journey yet, but I'm pretty sure that there's more similarity than there is difference between the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. It, it, I could be wrong, and I will reserve judgment until I finish reading the book, but the, the basic structure is there. It's what Sean Coyne calls the prototypical story, what, what Cameron called the monomyth. And it's, it's literally causality. Aristotle said there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. If you yes. don't have those things, you don't have a story. And right. the end is a point. It implies things that are more than just beginning, middle, and an end. So for me, it, it always begins with a character. I'm a high relator personality. I need to know this person. I inhabit. So Illyria is my anti-heroine. I live inside her when I'm writing the book. And... I feel like I know her as well as I know myself and my wife of 29 years. And in many ways, Illyria's character is inspired by my wife. Uh, my wife has always been my muse and in many ways, her number one restorative personality inspires some of the, we'll call them misbehaviors <laughs> of, of Illyria. Because the personality style, it's a number one restorative goal is to fix things. 
to put it right, to make it correct. And sometimes you can make it worse when you're trying to make things better. And once I have the character and I kind of know who they are and what they want, then I lay down a structure that takes it away from them. It's pieces of Save the Cat. Um, there's pieces of Michael Hagee's story structure. It's pieces of Vogler. I've just accumulated things and I have a big list of milestones and spreadsheets. I have all of the things and I use them as tools when I feel stuck because I'm a discovery writer. I can have I mean, for this book, this draft, because like I told you, this is, page, this is the fourth page one rewrite. I actually finished this one in a way that I like and I'm happy with. I used the story grid method. I wrote the fool's cap. I made sure that all of my obligatory scenes and conventions were planned. And then I began writing and got lost. And I went back <laughs> to the map. So I, I, I treat those tools, whether I'm using Lisa Cron's methodology from Story Genius to figure out what the early turning points are, what the memories are, the moments that made the character who she is, Mm-hmm. or something else I, I go back to those all right I got here and I just I don't know why but I always remember the the story about Dragonlance so Margaret Weiss tells this story sometimes if you ask her about killing Tasselhoff and that's when she calls Tracy Hickman oh my god what do I do I just killed Tasselhoff the book's over I don't know how to fix it and so I go, for me, I don't have a Tracy Hickman to call. I go back to the map. All right, where was I going? How does this happen? And because the book accelerated in power level very quickly, I intended for her to embrace and accept her goddesshood. Three. Well, I got there a whole lot faster in book one than I was planning to. But I liked how it happened. It was surprising to me. And I hope the way that it works is surprising to readers because it's like things that make me cry. When I write a scene in it, it affects me. It moves me. That's mm-hmm. a clue that it might do the same for other people. Right. And so my beta readers and my editor, my cohort, I have several editing groups that I work with. They give me the feedback of whether I got all the words that are in my head on the page. Yeah. And so on a weekly basis, I have several, like I said, I have three different groups that I work with. They're all in story grid. What we call them are super hardcore editing groups, shegs. And so <laughs> the, the, the sheg will take a, take a chapter or scene, a couple of thousand words and go through it. Does it have the five commandments of storytelling? Does it do something? Is there a crisis? And for me, that's the most important part. Every scene needs to present the point of view character a crisis. They have to make a choice. And that was one of the things that I didn't know when I wrote that first book in mm-hmm. 2011. There's just a bunch of stuff that happens. It's what Sean Coyne calls shoe leather. It's just people walking from place <laughs> to place, just going from here to there. They're at the airport, there's a gunfight. And now what happens? Well, we got to drive back to the ranch. Well, that's not interesting. Right. Why, right. why do we have to have that? And so it's the boring parts you got to learn how to cut out and or make interesting. So some right. of that for me is learning how to, all right, what's the crisis question for the point of view character? I made it easy on myself this time around because the first book had five points of view, all co-equal. They all had their own story arcs. They all had their own internal and external genres. Although I didn't know that's what I was calling, what to call them back then. <laughs> but 
I, I knew I had a monster with a problem and Roberto had a problem and I wanted this, him to solve it. Well, there was other people who had it were a tragedy. And so she's having a tragic story. I want that to pay off. And then interweaving five different stories seemed like a lot of fun, but that's really, <laughs> it was really, really complicated and really hard. So this time that's around- life. It is, but I've also, in part of my grieving in 2018, I did some analysis of the top 100 in my niches. And almost all of them, George R. R. Martin is an outlier, Joe Abercrombie's a little different, but most of them in, in epic fantasy are fewer points of view. The most successful, the ones that seem to resonate with people the most are one, maybe two points of view total. Like, you know, I would agree with that because um, too many points of view and you start forgetting who's who. I read a book. Actually, I never finished reading the book. I think it had like 10 points of view. I, I had no idea who was doing what. I finally I put the book down because I got confused. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that problem. There was a, an Apple TV series. I was just going out to find it. But for all mankind, that's what it's called. My wife and I started watching that. And after the first episode, we just quit. Because I couldn't tell from this ensemble cast whose story this is. Now, there are personality styles. There are high connectedness personality styles. There are includer personality styles that thrive on the ensemble cast. It's, it is right. common and popular in some niches. But for me, if I don't know whose story it is, I have a hard time caring. Right. Is it the young girl in Mexico who's watching us land on the moon for the first time? Is it the guy who's struggling with his, his substance abuse problem? I really wanted it to be the story of the female engineer who has to do all of the, she's literally living in her office and doing all <laughs> of her personal hygiene and has all this stuff hidden behind the props in her office. I wanted it to be her story, but she didn't get a lot of screen time. So I don't know. I don't think it's her story. Yeah. But I, I just couldn't care because if I don't know whose story it is I don't know what kind of story it is and right. I showed up the advertising drew me in a way that promised me something that didn't happen the advertising promised me war on the moon and there was absolutely nothing about war <laughs> and only a very small amount about the moon in the first episode and that's the thing that I <laughs> struggle with with book packages too and I want to make sure that mine sends very clear specific signals to my readers Exactly. When you read this book, you're going to get this thing. So mm -hmm. on my cover, there are ravens. It's called the Raven Queen. Raven Queen Arise is the title of the book. There's a dead woman whose throat has clearly been cut and she's holding a knife. There's dead people laying in the background. Things are on fire. They know what they're getting when they choose, just based on the cover, the mm -hmm. blurb needs to tell them this, and I have content warnings in the blurb. There's stuff in here that some people won't like. So if you have a problem with a menage love story, this is not the book for you. <laughs> Sorry, but I would rather you not buy my book than you exactly. buy it, be scarred and leave me a one-star review because, oh my God, that's horrible. How could you possibly think that? Well, you keep your judgment and I will keep my book you shouldn't read it right so. exactly i mean you're very clear on who your audience is and that's 
I don't, I don't want to accidentally pull anyone. And so from my point of view, I'm trying to serve a very narrow niche and send clear signals. I don't want to advertise something that I don't pay off. Exactly. Um, and for me, that's part of the fourth rewrite for this story. I put things in it on point on purpose. I made content choices because I was including very specific things for that very specific niche. Uh, my ideal reader profile that I, I drafted and then continue, I keep it evergreen. When I get stuck, one of the things I go back to, it's one of the tools and I forget who I collected it from, but I've been collecting things from author services and editors and gurus for a long time. And one of those is know who you're writing for. It was probably Lisa Crum. Um, mm -hmm. Love her to death. Her methods are fantastic. And I really enjoy the character focus of her stuff. Her new book, I haven't read yet, Story or Die, is promising. I, I kind of like that. It, there's, there's implied violence there. <laughs> implied violence, that's awesome. Well, we are, are running out of time. We probably already oh, wow. ran, out of, <laughs> ran out of time. But really quick, during our conversation here, you've been making reference to I'm a number one, uh, I can't think of where the word is, like, uh, strategic. They, I'm a number one strategic. Strategic, and your wife was a number one something else, mm -hmm. and they they sound like they're sort of important psychological characteristics things. I'm not they sure are. I or necessarily <laughs> my audience even knows what you're talking about, but it sounds like it's something we might want to know about. Could you elaborate? So I, I do. I do recommend my writing coaches, Becca Syme and her team at BetterFasterAcademy.com are the people who introduced me to using strengths for writers. I'm, I'm an ex-cop. I've been managing people for a long time. I'm very familiar with psychometrics, everything from the MMPI through Myers-Briggs and the big five, Enneagram, all of those. And Becca and her team use those as well. But the Clifton Strengths Finder method, uh, their psychometrics are the ones they use most often because there are 34 different strengths which are yearnings and problem-solving tools that we all have. Some of us have more of some than others. And knowing how your brain is wired makes it easier for you to fight resistance and to work the way that your brain is wired. I am not a deliberative personality. I am not a high consistency, high discipline personality. So as much as I love War of Art and I love Stephen Pressfield and I love his work, He's an ex-Marine, I am not. And so do the same thing all the time, fight the, hold the yeah, gate. No. I, I can't even eat the same thing for breakfast two days in a row. I don't even know if, if I write every day, that's great, but it's demotivating to me. I used to use Rachel Aaron's method. I, for, so the 2K to 10K is a great book. I love Rachel Aaron, I love her book but keeping track of things at that level of granularity is actually demotivating to me. I write more when I don't keep track of it. I'm kind of like Heisenberg's cat. If you look at me too hard, I, <laughs> I shift, I change, I don't know. That's completely wrong physics. I, I know I botched that. I apologize to all That's the okay. sci-fi fans in the audience. But from my point of view, the Clifton Strengths Finders method has been instrumental in changing my writing life as mm. well as my marriage and my parenting. There are a lot of things that's helpful to know when I'm working with an editing client, how they are wired. And so I do kind of require it of all of my clients and peers 
so that I know how to approach it. So if I knew karma was a number two includer personality and she's a number one restorative personality, I'm going to approach her with different processes. I see. If you were high communication, then I would talk to you about persuading you to do something differently than if you were an analytical personality. If you're a number one analytical, I'm going to show up with data. I'm going to convince you using algorithms and metrics and God forbid those scruffy things called heuristics. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you an emotional story. Now, if you're, if you're a high empathy personality, I'm going to make you feel what I want you to feel and mm -hmm. thereby persuade you to decide to choose to whatever it is that I, I want to move you to. And knowing that about myself, I know as a number one strategic, I'm an intuitive writer. I'm a discovery writer by nature, which means when I get stuck, there are specific things I need to do differently than a high context writer would do to get unstuck. Okay. And I have to accept that for me, writer's block is much maligned and much ballyhooed and it's a real thing, but I think how you think about it and how you approach fighting that resistance depends on how you're wired and what works for you. And so I like, I, the reason I went to, I met Becca in New York at RWA in 2019. And she said, she did a class. It was a two year, two hour seminar on the myths of product or productivity myths. I'm like, okay, I like myths. I, I, I like productivity. I'm a high achiever personality. How do I make more productivity? And most of her spiel was all of the tautologies in writing that may not be true for you. Mm -hmm. Stephen King says writers write. Well, it turns out for me, sometimes thinking is writing. Absolutely. I, I have to think. And so I could be on the couch. I could be punching the punching bag. I could be on the training mat in Krav Maga thinking about my story. And that's writing because I'm figuring it out. And Nora Roberts says, you can't edit a blank page. Well, with apologies to, to Nora, I do. I edit a lot before I ever put fingers on the keyboard because yeah. there's a lot of things as a strategic personality, I create the matrix. I know what all the possibilities are and I have to collapse the scaffolding down to the decisions that I've made. And sometimes I don't have enough yet. It could be character that I need to write about. I could, I, and that's why I have a collection of tools. I go back to Lisa Kron's method and I write the turning points that made the misbelief, what Michael Hagee calls the misbelief and the wound. And I figure out what those are. And if something changes and I am now just past the threshold, we're leaving the beginning hook and we're into the extraordinary world and I just changed something. And strategic in my head will stop me. You just broke it nothing works. And I don't know why. As an intuitive writer, I don't know why I can't write. I don't know what's wrong. And so I'll do what Hemingway did. I will rewind a little bit and read through what I just wrote and go, oh, I changed that. That means two scenes from now or three turning points later or in seven beats. I, I can't. I got to either change that or I got to go back to the plan. And so I open up the plan and figure out from the map what else needs to be adjusted. Exactly. But it, it happens 
for an for intuitive writers, it happens so fast that you don't even realize it. Suddenly, you just feel like you're in another story, and you're lost. You know, you're standing around. A, you're standing around a left field, going, "How in the hell did I get here?" Oh my God, I don't want to delete all those words, but I think I might have to delete all those words. And I can't call Tracy Hickman because he doesn't know who I am. Ah, what do I do? You and know so what you having just a writing, having a writing coach is really helpful. What you just described is, I've been doing a lot of research on writer's block. Funny thing that you just mentioned it. And I've identified six different causes, which is why there's no one cure for writer's block. And what you just described was a creative kraken. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's, 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 it's the, it's the type of monster that, that is a creative cause to writer's block. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different causes. There are some that are like intellectual and creative and I call them creative krakens. They all have monster names. I I know that's awesome. I like that a lot. And yeah. I'm going to share that I have uh, one of my clients who's really struggling. He's writing this book and he kind of knows what it is but for him the paralyzing problem is choice mm -hmm. every choice narrows his field and he doesn't want to be committed well you have to as you a, have to yeah he, he's a, he's a trailblazer archetyped i think in personality and i'm one of these days i'm going to get him to go take the assessment so that he will know and as a, I think he's a high strategic, top five strategic personality, he sees the scaffolding collapse with every choice he makes. But in order to write the book, you have to turn your back on all the other paths. You yeah. have, to, in order to blaze a trail, you have to cut in this direction. You got to put your Indiana Jones on hat on, you got to get <laughs> out your machete and you got to chop in one direction. And that means by definition, everything else behind you is abandoned. You've got to let it go. And Mike, yeah. I love you, man. But you got to choose. And it could be you write the, the perfect book. I wrote the perfect book four times. Yeah. But the first three weren't perfect. But I yeah. had to write them. And as much as I hate it, I had to write over 100,000 words three times before I discovered all of the things I needed to know to write those 120,000 words the fourth time. Exactly. But we're all in a work in progress. I'm really hoping that book two in that series is a lot easier and faster to write now <laughs> that I figured out a bunch of stuff. But well, if books um, are like children, I have heard the second birth is easier. <laughs> I that was not my wife's experience. And then in parenting, uh, the second our, okay. our middle child is many many more challenging. Uh, okay. But no, well. I, I, we, I I like metaphors, but they're dangerous. <laughs> Indeed. So, so Dave, tell us a little, tell us if someone wanted to learn more about this upcoming book and wanted to learn more about you, where would they go? It's real easy. DaveReed.me. D-A-V-E-R-E-E-D dot M-E is my website. Um, the book's linked from there. It's up for pre-order on Amazon right now, but I intend to go wide. It'll be on Apple Books, it'll be on Google Play, all of the other places where I might get books out there. Because I want to meet my readers where they read. No, I don't want to have to, if you, I want them to force it. The Kickstarter will be for the limited edition hardcover in September and the book launch on October 1st. Awesome. So, well, I wish you the best anxiety for it. And <laughs> I wish you the best for it. And oh, um, hopefully our, some of our listeners will go check you out. Thank you. It was fun, Karma. Yes, thank you.
the author switch at authorswitch.com.